lot when we try to recreate another person's creation. Whether we're making a copy of an object to better understand it, to refine our skills, or to share a version of that object with others, reproduction raises questions about materials and methods, and also about originality and fidelity. I'm Vanessa Warren, and you're listening to Victorian Samplings. In this episode, we'll hear from curator Andrea Reichert. Andrea spoke with Natalie Lovetri about samplers and about an initiative to recreate a set of historical samplers damaged by water. Jesse Cron shares an interview with Elena Chesnova about how tracing paper featured in the work of Gottfried Semper. And I speak with Cree Métis beadwork artist Cynthia Bowen about her plans to recreate a pair of beaded gauntlets that were made by her great-grandmother and that are now part of a museum collection. We're very glad to have you with us. Let's dive in. This is Natalie Lovetri, and in this episode, I'm sharing what Andrea Reichert, the curator of the Manitoba Crafts Museum and Library, kindly shared with me. Andrea, who curated an exhibit on samplers in 2021, spoke with me from the museum in downtown Winnipeg. She shared her knowledge of the history of samplers and also of a unique sampler reproduction project, a response to damage done to the museum's collection by a destructive water main break. I'm Andrea Reichert. I'm the curator at the Manitoba Crafts Museum and Library. What a sampler is depends on what time period you're looking at. The samplers that a lot of people think about are the school samplers that girls, almost always girls, made sort of from the 19th century into the early 20th century. And they have alphabets on them. And sometimes there's other motifs, houses or animals or flowers, that kind of thing. Sometimes there's numbers, sometimes the name of the stitcher is on there, sometimes the date is on there. And so those types of samplers were meant as a practice exercise for the girls to learn stitching, but also to reinforce some literacy and some numeracy. Sometimes there was Bible verses, so it also reinforced some of the religious thoughts that people had at the time. So that's what that kind of samplers are. But samplers can be beyond that. The original purpose of samplers was more, it was a mixed purpose. It was a teaching tool, it was a memory aid, and it was a way for people to share. So this is going, you know, way back into the 15th century, sometimes even beyond, where women would use the samplers as a way to learn stitches. So they would meet with another stitcher and one woman would teach the other how to do something. And so that they would do the stitching on a piece of fabric. And then that was a way for the stitcher to remember what she had learned from someone else. And then to also teach it to other people as well. They were looking at a time period where a lot of people didn't read, where there wasn't paper, there certainly wasn't the type of technology we have now. So it was a way in a non largely non-literate society for women to have this way to keep and remember and learn stitches. 
there are other samplers where it's more of a trial type of piece as well, where you're trying different stitches. So you make something that, you know, is a finished product or wall hanging or, or something like that, but you're trying different stitches as you go along, or you're trying different weaving techniques, whatever you're learning, you're trying it as you go along. They tend to be, you know, samplers are, are stitched, but there's also, you know, there's samplers that are embroidered. There's samplers that are more like tailoring samplers where people learn how to put in buttonholes or gussets or darning pieces or you know that type of work so it's really difficult to pin down exactly what a sampler is it depends a little bit what time period you're looking at and and what craft at some point in the late 1700s samplers started to be a teaching tool and we have samplers in our collection from the 1820s so it was firmly established by then and it was Something that was taught, I think, exclusively to girls, there was really a gender split into what women needed to know, girls and women, what boys and men needed to know. And so the sampler was a teaching tool that allowed girls to learn stitching, which was important. And, and that was important regardless of whether you were a wealthy woman or whether you were a lower class woman. The skills that you, the specific skills you needed to know were different, but all women really, it was a really important skill because if you were a lower class woman, you made your clothes for your family. It was often one of the ways that you made income. You would take in piecework to earn a living. And if you were an upper class woman, you still did stitching. Some of it was recreational, but you had to be a household manager, so you had to be able to understand what was happening with your clothing and your and the linens in your house. There was monogramming that went on so that you could tell which pieces belonged to which people. So knowing how to sew and stitch was an important skill for all classes, all wealth levels. And so I don't think the lower class women necessarily did a lot of the samplers. They probably learned it a little bit differently, but it was a way for girls to learn those skills. They could learn stitching. It reinforced the alphabet and numbers, and it allowed you to do some exploration artistically, put your name on it. And it was also a bit of a, a way to prove that you could do these things, right? So if you were able to produce a sampler, then it was, it was like a test as well. It was a way to evaluate how well you did it. A morning sampler is a work that would be made sometimes, occasionally they were in memory of people, but a lot of times it was just if you happened to be in mourning at that time and you would include symbols like weeping willows and drab colors just to indicate that that's the status of your, your life. There's symbols in a lot of the motifs in samplers. Different motifs can mean different things and so those were embedded into samplers as well. The path of artifacts, objects from the 1800s into our collection is sometimes clear and sometimes not. Often samplers were passed down from one generation to the other. It was a way to remember your your parents, your mother, your grandmother, your great grandmother. Some things they grow in significance over the years as the you know as the time goes past. But sometimes they don't. Sometimes you know estates get scattered and things come available through estate sales or yard sales or antique stores or what have you. So some of them come directly from the families and some don't. There are sampler collectors out there who collect samplers and occasionally that's how they come to us as well. So I think it's kind of like anything, although I guess with samplers, it, there's probably more likelihood that you would keep it in your family. It's a small thing. It can roll up, put in a drawer. It's not, it's not a large thing that can be sometimes difficult to manage or difficult to move, you know, particularly if you're you know, a settler from Europe and you're coming across the ocean, it's a small thing that you can tuck into your, your trunk or your bag to remember your past. So there isn't really a consistent path that the samplers have taken to come to our collection. 
To talk about the sampler reproduction project, I have to talk a little bit about what precipitated it. In 1998, the museum was located in the art space building it was in the the basement it's not kind of a full basement but it's sort of like where the windows are the sidewalk level and in the middle of the night uh, one of the water mains burst and it flooded the space and so there was about 15 inches of water in the space and obviously things were damaged through that it was about 10 percent of the collection had some sort of damage to it some of the items that were damaged were a set of samplers. Largely what happened is the, the dyes ran. The colors weren't color fast. And so when they got wet, the dyes ran. And sometimes once that happens, that's it. Maybe if you had extensive conservation budget, you might be able to remedy it. We did do conservation treatments on things. So it wasn't like we just left things. But for these, we weren't able to reverse that damage to it. At one point, there was, you know, we have a large volunteer core and some of the stitchers at the time, volunteers who were stitchers at the time, decided that they wanted to do a reproduction project. I think they were intrigued by doing it and it was a challenge. They knew that it wasn't like we were reproducing them to then discard the originals. We were reproducing them so that it would be sort of an idea of what they might've looked like when they were new. And so they embarked on this ambitious project. The first thing they had to do was they had to learn about what the original samplers were. So they did research, they did some fiber samples, they looked at the thread count and tried to figure out what are the originals made out of and how are they made. And that involved doing the charting as well. So we took photographs of the works, both in color and in black and white, and we blew them up really big. They were like 20 by 24, big, large prints of these pieces so that the stitchers could work at home and count and look at the pattern and count all the different stitches and then chart them onto, and they charted it onto just paper. Like this was in the early 2000s. So there might've been charting software then, but it wouldn't have been very complex at the time. And, you know, these were older women who probably wouldn't have bothered with that anyway. So they had graph paper and they, there's a different symbol for each color. So sometimes it's a little X, but sometimes it's a little dot or sometimes it's little numbers or, so there's a different symbol for each color so that when you're going through and you're stitching, you can say, okay, this, this symbol is red. And then this symbol is blue and this symbol is yellow. And so so they were looking at both where the stitches were, but they were looking at what the colors were. So they could, when they get to the next part, which is stitching, they know what what to do on the new piece. And so that was a big, big project, obviously. And what happens with some of the older pieces is the standard rules for stitching didn't always apply. People, you know, stitching 150 or 200 years ago, they didn't know that you were supposed to go from left to right. And so there was a little bit of anomalies about what people were doing. There was errors where something was supposed to be over half stitch and then it wasn't. So there were all these little errors and things. And, and some of the stitches themselves were unconventional. One of the borders in particular, the way of doing the hem stitching, you know, which goes around the outside, it was different. It was something that wouldn't be done today. It's not the standard way of doing it. And so the stitchers had to figure out, well, how did, how did the stitcher do that? What was the order? And sort of figure that out. So there was sort of that part of it. There was also sourcing the new materials because the types of fabrics and the types of threads and yarns that are available now or, you know, 20 years ago were not what were available in the 1850s or 1820s or 18, you know, 19, even 1900s. So we found that the thread count was really high. People generally don't work on fabric with that much thread count to it. So so there was sort of some figuring out, well, you know, what's the closest kind of fabric that we can get? What's the closest kind of yarns that we can get? And so there was the research stage and where can you get them? Some of the things came from Europe because that's where some of the old traditional 
techniques are still followed. So there was that stage. And then there was the stitching stage where they, they had their new materials, they had their yarns, they had their charts, they had everything they needed, and then they stitched them. And so that was sort of the project. There was a lot of different stages. It took several years to do it, going through all the stages and sort of figuring everything out. So now we have the originals, which we still have in the collection, but we have these reproductions, which are, you can tell they're a reproduction, obviously, they're brand new, they, they don't have any stains or any marks, or, and they're very, very straight lines, right? Like the old ones, you know, they're a little wonky here and there, but it's interesting to see how they came out. They're also, the reproductions are also a little, a little bit bigger because we couldn't do it in the same thread count. So when you have a bigger thread count, the threads are further apart, so it makes it bigger. So they're all just a little bit bigger than their originals. One of my favorites, it's a, it's a very simple sampler. It's just got red thread and it was made by Margaret Hay. It was finished, I think it was finished, the finished date, March 17th, 1825. And what I really like about it is it's just so tiny. <laughs> it's so, the thread is tiny and the fabric is such so a super fine count and it's just so petite and so precise and I don't know there's something about it it's it's so simple because it's just the two colors it's just red thread on on white fabric but there's just something about it and just the the tininess of it and the and precision that you would need to have to pull this off and so I've always really liked that one it doesn't have an age on it. It just has her name, Margaret Hay. I expect she's from Europe, probably England, but I don't know for sure. A lot of them don't come with those histories. And so that's one of my favorites. I actually like one of the ones that's part of the sampler reproduction project. It's one that's more of a, a, an edging stitch sampler. So it doesn't have the alphabets and it doesn't have you know the name and things like that. It's just a series of small sections of edging and... Again, there's just something about it's it's very informal. It's not a completed work. Like I don't think it was ever meant to be a a showpiece like some of the samplers, but I think there's just something again, it's a very petite precise stitching and obviously meant as a practice piece. That was one of my other favorites. Some of the tailoring samplers, like they're not they're not meant as showpieces. They're really meant as pieces that women would have had to make as part of their education. And so the quality of, and, and this is like sewing, like tailoring sewing, as opposed to embroidery sewing, just the amount of skill that they were mastering in these samplers that were then put to use afterwards in making garments and the, the standard that was required to be a proper tailor or seamstress. They're just so precise. And I think there's obviously some people that still have those skills, but it's not a common skill. It's not something that the average person has these days. It's interesting to see them because it's just, it's a lost, not completely, but it's, it's not something that people do anymore because you go and you buy your clothes. And, and so these skills are not valued the same way as they were when the samplers were made. So I think that's a really interesting part of that type of sampler is that it shows it just shows the level of skill that was part of people. And yet at the same time, so many of these women were lower class. They were looked down upon to some degree because they were they were just stitchers. They didn't, didn't necessarily have a education. And so it's a little bit of a, a disconnect between you have this vast knowledge and yet it's not always even even then, like there wasn't always there's always the value put on it. So that's an interesting part of some of the work that is in our collection is it always wasn't always valued. 
Thank you to Andrea Reichert for what she shared to see examples of both historical samplers and of the reproductions Andrea described, please visit our episode page. You'll find a link to a video tour of the Manitoba Craft Museum and Library's 2021 Samplers Exhibition. Hello, Victorian samplers. I'm Jessie Cron. I'm speaking today with Dr. Elena Chesnova. Elena is a researcher at the Institute for History and Theory of Art and Architecture at the Academy of Architecture in Madricio, Universidad de la Svizzera Italiana. We'll be speaking about two unassuming sketches created by Gottfried Zemper, architect and art theorist. Elena, could you start us off by telling us about Gottfried Zemper? Gottfried Zemper was born in 1803 and died in the 1870s. Uh, so his life spanned a kind of uh, most of what is called Victorian or pre-Victorian era. Um, and he was born in uh, Hamburg, near Hamburg. And uh, he became an architect after a kind of uh, career where he studied at multiple German universities and then studied architecture in Paris. Um, and uh, he, um, the reason why we know about him is, uh, or the reason why he is well known really in, uh, especially among architects and designers, is because he wrote a really uh, big theory of, um, of art. From today's perspective, we would call it the theory of art and material culture, where he was trying to uh, figure out how forms come to be. Uh, and another thing that's interesting about Zemper is that he had a very international trajectory. So after uh, studying in uh, Germany and France, uh, he was working in Dresden. Uh, and then after the 1849 uprising, he was forced to flee. He came to England for five years, uh, was in England over the Great Exhibition, uh, was involved with the design reform, and then came to Zurich, uh, which is where I am now. Uh, and that was part of the reason why I ended up doing my PhD on Zemper and why um, Zemper remains a fairly big part of my research. According to Zemper, there are four types or so there are four groups of objects and he arranged them. So his theory is literally like a building. So he imagines objects that are grouped around the, ha the hearth in a kind of a hierarchy of things, objects that are associated with the roof, with the walls and with the foundation of the home. And uh, he proposes that along with these four elements, there are techniques uh, that go, go with them. So the techniques of the hearth are ceramics and by extension, uh, metalwork. The techniques of the wall are textiles. The, uh, the technique of the foundation is stonework. And the technique of um, the roof is anything to do with timber and timber working. Um, but he also extends this into a kind of um, anthology of forms. So he believes that forms start off in one material, but then they can metamorphosize through different materials and be copied. So unlike many theorists of the 19th century, he sees copying as not uh, a kind of detrimental thing. He doesn't believe that things have or forms have one true material or one kind of true place where they are at home, but it's rather that they travel around that they and that they change in this process of traveling around. And another thing that's key to Zemper's theory is the idea of dressing or of covering up. Part of Zemper's 
um, motivation in constructing his theory was uh, this idea of demonstrating that ancient monuments had been painted and not white. And in order to uh, prove this, he uh, developed this idea of dressing as a way by which forms of art achieve their true meaning. It's kind of the other way around from what we typically see being talked about in kind of Western philosophy or European theory, where people say, okay, things on the surface deceive and the true meaning is hidden in the deep, in the depths. Zempa actually stays the opposite. He says it is the dressing, it is the decoration on the outside that allows artworks to achieve their true potential. What he's trying to get at really is the nature of the artwork and the artistic process. And within that process, he assigns quite a lot of agency to the things. So art is not an object, is not, it's not something that's simply made by the human mind and the human hand, but rather it's, uh, it's a thing that comes to be with some interventions from, interventions from humans. And in that he kind of comes also from, these sort of perceptions on art that he would have been reading as a young man and then as, as a young um, uh, architect. For him, the, the sort of category of true and false that we associate so strongly with 19th century art theory or art discourse was not central in the same way as it was for somebody like Ruskin, for example. We're talking about two of Semper's sketches. Can you describe them and can you talk about what you think is significant about these sketches? Right. So the two sketches come from a, an extensive archive of Godfrey Zemper that's preserved in Zurich. And they are um, little pieces of tracing paper that are stuck on a background of sort of grayish paper. And they are in pencil. And one of them shows a kind of... Um, basket-like container or reticule held by a hand. So the, the container is seen from the side and it has a handle and it is held by a hand with a flower, uh, with a, a bracelet in the shape of a flower. Um, the container is uh, roughly rectangular. It narrows a little bit towards the middle and it has a sort of basket-like woven pattern to it. And the second sketch has, um, it displays the same container but in more detail. And there are some notes that come with the sketches and one note specifies that the, the sketch of the container alone is there for the purposes of clarity or explanation and what is to be used as an illustration is the sketch with the hand. And the notes are there because these are um, sketches that Zemper had provided as the basis for the woodcats, which would be included in his book. So what we're looking at here are uh, parts, um, or these sketches are were a part of a process of getting his book made as not only as a text, but also as a collection of images. And within the Zemper archive, there are many, many such sketches. Some of them have been um, located by Zemper within this process of bookmaking, but there are also some others that have never been published. So he did this quite a lot. He used tracing paper and then went to publications, went to books and traced off um, images. In one case, he had actually done a rubbing. Um, so we're talking here about objects that are used to make these kind of copies or representations. I think there is a rather 
intriguing connection to two points of his theory. So one connection is to, to the theory of dressing and the other connection is to the theory of metamorphosis of art forms because we're seeing here essentially both. So on the one hand, he is taking tracing paper and laying it over the original and then tracing that original and but also changing it. So in the sketch with the hand, the hand that he includes is substantially different from the original hand of the print that he's tracing. So the original hand, um, uh, the sketch comes from a publication on the remains of discovered in Assyria um, or the remains of ancient Assyria as they were referred to in the contemporary publications. And um, in the original publication, uh, we see a cl very clearly male figure holding this kind of container or reticule and also wearing the bracelet. And you can see this on the original hand as well. But Zemper replaces it with a female hand. So he relocates, resituates this artifact um, by within the process of tracing. So there is, uh, on the one hand, he is dressing it, he is copying it, but he is also making a new kind of narrative with it. So there is a sort of this aspect of dressing and an aspect of metamorphosis. And this corresponds very nicely to, uh, to his ideas about around artistic dressing or architectural dressing. The object that is dressed becomes something else. It becomes a piece of art. It sounds like reproduction and transmission were very important to artistic production for Zemper. Yes, certainly. And I, um, I know for a fact that it was common for publishers to um, reuse illustrations in books, but I'm not sure how typical Zemper was with his little bits of tracing paper. And uh, again, I don't know to what extent this might have been con uh, conditioned by him having been an architect by that point, because tracing paper was certainly already used by architects very much in a similar way to how it is used today. So you would do a drawing and then you would put a sheet of tracing paper over it and you would make another version with corrections. And the transparency of the tracing paper was something that allowed that process to take place. Um, I think today also many artists or many designers would use tracing paper in a very similar way. So it's part of this process of remaking something, reusing it, changing it. Do you think that Zemper's choice to feminize aspects of this object in his representation indicate a kind of Orientalist bias? Um, there is definitely an aspect of Orientalism to what Zemper is doing with the hand. So the hand that we see him adding to the sketch is very similar to the kind of kinds of hands that we would see in 19th century Orientalist paintings. So something like the Death of Sardanapalus would be a classic example. So it's a very rounded, very, very effeminate hand. Um, a different question is what sort of value we assign to that move. And the answer to that is found in how Zemper situates Assyrian art. So um, when he began writing his book, the discoveries of Assyria were actually one of the main impetuses for him to actually sit down and start writing something. And one of the reasons why he was so excited about them is because these remains were older than Greek remains. And they showed a very clear case of walls being dressed with alabaster panels. So this, this tracing here comes from some of the images that were, just, uh, that were carved on these alabaster panels. Um, and um, 
or rather from a representation of some of those images. And Zemper um, connected this with his theory of dressing and his proposition that the um, Greek monuments were painted by stating that this idea of dressing was something that was originally oriental and that it traveled to the Greeks and the Greeks incorporated it and thus through this aspect of oriental incorporation their art became more um, more artistic it transcended to a higher stage of development so this is something that Zempa um, kind of very consciously builds into his narrative of the history of art but it's also something that he projects into his own time because as he goes around events like the great exhibition and as he critiques the objects of design of the 1850s um, he points out that many of the quote-unquote oriental creations have much higher quality of design but how do we learn from that is the question for him and that is the point where he turns back and says but look the uh, representatives of what for him are high European cultures have been doing this all the time. So the Greeks incorporated the Oriental influence of the Assyrians and through this incorporation, their art became a higher art. Um, so this sort of location of the Assyrian artifact as Oriental by the means of including this very clearly Oriental hand is quite a subtle move on Zempa's part. It's really about locating Assyrian art in relation to his particular argument or his the particular narrative that he's trying to build here. Do you think Zemper would have seen mass reproduction as a positive thing because it would have allowed people to view objects from places that they might never get to visit in their lifetimes? When we look at these processes and we see and we question whether this would have been positive or negative, we're being a bit anachronistic. So, and this is because we have an explicitly negative attitude to the copy. To copy is a bad thing for us. The 19th century was on a totally different planet in these terms because we are in the age of historicism. So in our, you know, on our scale of things, they were copying all the time. Um, and a lot of their design consisted of quote unquote copying. Um, to the point where you know there are i know examples in jewelry for example where some of the artifacts that jewelers had made were got mistaken for the originals for a very long time by 20th century museum professionals so they really went a long way to copy in our terms but the copy meant a very different thing to them so the what we now term a copy was really a means to employment a means to creating stories a means to um to making art uh, and what is also interesting, I think, when we look at how Zemper is working, and I think in that sense he was very typical of his time, is that descriptions of artifacts in text and print reproductions of them, uh, or sort of representations of them in print or in engravings and woodcuts, are treated by him as um, certainly equivalent to each other, and then again as being very close to the original things. So he is working predominantly from print sources and representations, even in situations where we know that the original artifacts were easily accessible to him. So he is not going to the original thing and looking at it. Instead, he is looking at um, 
uh, at uh, engravings of it. And uh, this, I think, again, points to this idea of the copy or the representation as being something that is not only equivalent to the original, but also something that is even better than the original, in some sense, even more convincing, certainly more convincing, I think, for the purposes of creating implotments, for the purposes of creating these narratives. Um, and so I think positive, negative, um, well, from our perspective, yes, certainly they were seeing it positively, but the negative, I think, simply would never have occurred to Zemper and the majority of his contemporaries, possibly with the exception of people like Ruskin, who already in the 1850s start bringing this kind of moralistic dimension into our theory. But, you know, again, we have to kind of look a little bit beyond what we know of the late 19th century writings on art, also second, second half of the 19th century writings on art, and try to look a little bit beyond that to, um, uh, first of all, to things that came before. And secondly, I think also a little bit to popular culture or what we would now term popular culture, because Zempa is also working a lot with sources that were decidedly popular from our perspective. So he's also copying from uh, illustrated magazines. He is uh, he's reading travel books and travel accounts and so on. So this kind of popular world for him also serves as very much an object of study or as, as a field where he draws things for his theory from or things for making his narrative from that is not in his eyes, any less important than things in museums or writings of important people and so on. Thank you so much, Elena, for this educational chat. Cynthia Boehm is a beadwork artist who was born and raised in Norway House, where traditional practices were part of her home and community. Her work has been exhibited in galleries across Canada and also in Scotland. She has a thriving commercial practice, selling her original beadwork designs and making commissioned pieces, and Cynthia also teaches beading both in person and online. Hello Cynthia and welcome. Thank you, Vanessa. Thank you for having me here today. It's a pleasure to uh, talk about my passion of beadwork. So I'm excited to talk with you about Cree Métis beading. We've had the chance to talk in the past, Cynthia, and I'm glad to speak with you again. Can I invite you to introduce yourself to our listeners? Yes, certainly. Uh, my name is Cynthia Bohm, and I was born and raised in Norway House, Manitoba. I am Cree Métis with Scottish uh, descent. I grew up in a community that is very rich in history and vibrant in culture. Beadwork has always been a part of Norway House. I am uh, very honored that I have the opportunity to practice uh, beadwork, the art form of my ancestors. Shall we start exploring your work, Cynthia, by talking about how you got your start as a beader? Yes. My grandmother was a beater. Uh, my mother was a very talented lady. She loved to crochet, knit, sew. She taught me at a young age to, uh, to sew. When I was older and decided this is what I wanted to do, uh, was beading and sewing, all that teaching came back to me. With beadwork and silk embroidery being a big part of Norway House and Norway House being famous for 
their intricate, beautiful silk embroidery that ended up all over in different parts of the world. You know, a lot of these items being returned to Norway House, to the community. I always had a fascination for beadwork, and it was something I always admired. And art has always been a part of my life. I'm very artistic from a young age. I love to paint and draw. But there was this connection that didn't... Uh, I didn't connect with the brush, my canvas, my pencil, and my pad. I decided that, okay, it's time to learn. This is something I always wanted to do. And I had taken a workshop on how to make a pair of beaded moccasins. And from there, you know, it was something that just, I was so fascinated with it. And I was so proud that I made these pair of moccasins for my husband. And when I made those moccasins, the first memory that came to my mind was uh, the pointed toe moccasins. I was al already wanting to learn them because it was such a part of my uh, my home. My grandmothers, both my grandmothers had made those moccasins and my grandfathers, my grandmothers, my parents wore them. And I learned to walk in moccasins myself and wrap around moccasins. From learning the moccasins, I wanted to learn, you know, the gauntlets, the mucklucks, the mittens. My first beading technique I learned was the one needle. I really had uh, trouble learning that, you know, and I knew two needle beading was common in Norway House. Actually, they mixed the one needle and two needle. I learned the two needle, uh, I self-taught myself, and I loved what came out of that because I found my beadwork was flatter, it was easier to handle, and, and it started basically from there. So Cynthia, as you've noted, you've made lots of beaded pieces that are worn by people, including moccasins. You've made some beautiful wall-mounted pieces, and you've also made some very special pieces worn by dogs, tuppies, or dog blankets. Is there a piece from among the many things you've made you'd like to describe for our listeners? Yes, there is actually. One of the items I really enjoyed learning and making was a sled dog blanket. And why it was so special to me is I was always fascinated just with the idea of what this dog blanket represented back in, you know, back in the 1800s, 1700s. And during the pandemic, we uh, decided to bring a dog home into our family. And prior to bringing our our puppy home, I thought it was time to learn. It gave me a motivation. It gave me the motivation to learn. So I connected with the Manitoba Museum and Dr. Amelia Fay had a Zoom meeting with me and I was able to view some of the old uh, HBC dog blankets and to give me a sense of my learning, um, you know, that was very helpful. And then uh, sizing the dog blanket, I was really guessing at the size because I wanted to start it before we brought my dog home. And I started uh, guessing at the size. Learning how to make that was very special because, you know, I just loved the idea of the sled, do sled dog blankets, just how they were adorned, you know, with wool, bells, elaborate beadwork, yarn fringe, yarn pom-poms. They were so exquisitely made that I was so fascinated with the look. As Indigenous people, beadwork was very special and we honored our family. We honored, you know, our home and we decorated our homes in beadwork down to, um, you know, our dogs. 
So beading is very physically demanding. It also takes a great deal of focus and creativity, as well as, in your case, Cynthia, knowledge of traditional methods and motifs. What is it about beading that sustains you or motivates you to do this very challenging work? What motivated me to learn and what motivates me to continue beading is just the history, my connection, uh, growing up in a community where beading was very common and uh, coming from a community of talented beaters. I saw a lot of beadwork throughout my childhood, my grandmother being a beater and making beautiful things for our family. And it was very common, you know, attending school, seeing my classmates wearing beautiful mukleks that their mothers, their grandmothers made for them. And what continues to inspire me is just the history that I'm learning in my research. Uh, finding my grandmother's work at the Manitoba Museum uh, really inspired me to research. Uh, when I first learned to bead, a lot of my beadwork was uh, contemporary, and I really, I was learning, and when I was connected with the museum and had the opportunity to see beadwork that was produced uh, in the 1800s, the early 1900s, I became even more fascinated. And what really inspired me and motivated me was finding my great-grandmother, Jane Mary Sinclair's work in the museum. You know, knowing this work was there for many years and being reintroduced to her work at this point in time in my life is very special to me. We had known of this, my mother had talked about this saying that some of the commission work she had done in you know what we think was back in the 1920s 1930s were donated to the Manchester Museum and my mother talked about a pair of moccasins and that's all that we really thought that were that was there in the museum I approached Dr. Maureen Matthews and her and her colleagues uh, researched based on very limited information they had found, I believe it was 11 pieces of my grandmother's work, and she had contacted me, and I had no idea. And I thought of my mother, how she always wanted to find these moccasins. I wish my mother was able to see these because she talked about them. My mother had since passed on, and finding them, spending time with these beaded pieces that she made basically over... 80, 90 years ago was very special. I felt like I reconnected with my grandmother and a flood of memories came back of her, our time together and just the kind, sweet lady she was. And going forward with that, um, it's always been on my mind that, you know, I wanted to reproduce some of these, uh, one of these pieces. And I thought about it and it's been I'd say about four years now since I had met my grandmother's work and I decided that I'm going to make a commitment over the next several months uh, into the fall and reproduce a pair of elaborately beaded gauntlets that were made with moose hide and I believe it's mink or beaver fur and they were made with elaborate beadwork that's very similar in pattern to the silk embroidery of Norway House very intricate patterns and it's something that's going to be a learning experience for me. It's going to be reconnecting with my great-grandmother and it's going to be the most special project I think I'll ever do. 
One of the things I always um, like to talk about when I talk about beadwork, whether it's when I'm in a market, when I'm sharing in a workshop, is that beading is an art form. At one point in time, it was considered craft. And when you take paints, pencil, and you have a vision in your mind, and you put it together and you produce that vision, that's artwork. These same principles and te techniques apply with beadwork. You have your beads, you have your threads, you have your vision, whether it's inspired by the land, whether it's inspired by a family member's pattern. When you take that vision, that idea that you have, and sometimes it comes to you in a dream, sometimes it comes to you from seeing something so beautiful and pretty, such as nature, wildflowers, could be anything. You take that vision, the process starts of that vision of drawing out your patterns and the composition, as in any art form. You select your colors, you put that all together, and this vision with the materials that you're using comes alive. And something inside an artist also comes alive because it's a part of, it's a part of you, it's special, and when you complete a project, you really will sit and spend time with it. You look at it, and at times, you can't believe that you produce that work yourself. And when I say that, what makes me really proud is it's a part of my culture. It's an art form of my ancestors that makes it so much more special. As I had mentioned uh, prior with my other art practices, uh, painting and drawing, there's this block. I've always had this block that what I envision and what I create don't connect. But with beadwork, what I vision and what I create, there's this connection that happens. And it's beautiful and it's a part of my culture. And I'm connected to the art form through my ancestors. Before we say goodbye, Cynthia, I'll let our listeners know that we're sharing links to images of your work on our website, and listeners can also find you and follow you on Facebook on your page, Cynthia Boehm, Cree Artist. Thank you, Cynthia. It's been lovely speaking with you. Thank you, Vanessa. This has been a great pleasure. Thank you to guests Andrea Reichert, Elena Chesnova, and Cynthia Bowen. Thank you also to my co-creators Anne Hung, Jesse Cron, and Natalie Lovetri, and thank you also to Lucy Von Schilling. Please stay in touch by following us on Twitter at CraftyVictorian and by visiting our website, CraftingCommunities.net. Be sure to check out the curated content we share for each episode on the podcast page of the Crafting Communities website. You'll find, among other resources, a link to a video tour of the Manitoba Craft Museum and Library's Samplers Exhibition. Victorian Samplings was recorded and produced on the territory of the Lunquangan and Sanchothan-speaking communities of the Songhees, Esquimo, and Wasanich peoples, and on Treaty 1 territory traditional land of the Anishinaabe, Cree, Oji Cree, Dakota, and Dene peoples, and homeland of the Métis Nation. Victorian Samplings is the podcast of the Crafting Communities Project, which is supported by the Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council of Canada, the Victorian Studies Association of Western Canada, and the Universities of Alberta, Manitoba, and Victoria. 
The project is a collaboration between Andrew Corda, Mary Elizabeth Layton, and me, Vanessa Warren. Thank you for listening. Thank you.